Hey everybody, it's Pete. Welcome to Season 2 of The Change Paradox. We're still here, me and Dodge, talking about change and the paradox therein. We learned a lot last season, and in spite of coming face-to-face with our own inadequacies as we work to impact change in our own lives, I guess I should go ahead and speak for myself there, we're pretty darn tickled to be back with another slate of guests to keep us pushing forward and learning this season. We start with Lance Bennett. Lance is Professor Emeritus and the founding director for the Center of Communication and Civic Engagement at University of Washington. His specialty, naturally, political science and civic engagement, and he's been a valiant contributor to the body of knowledge in the field for decades. He's with us this week to talk about change as it manifests in our current political and media landscapes. And along the way, we do our best to unravel some of the things we've done to ourselves as human organisms that get in the way of change we'd like to see in the world. At least, the change some of us would like to see in the world. It's hard to see in all of us these days, isn't it? Lance's latest book hit the shelves just a few months ago, and it's a primer for those of us concerned with the state of our environment and our apparent inability to act aggressively in response. His thesis, How Can We Communicate and Act More Effectively? To Make the Political and Economic Changes Required to Survive and Even Thrive Within the Life Support Capacities of Our Planet. The book is called Communicating the Future, Solutions for Environment, Economy, and Democracy, And it's available now. Thanks for sticking with us. This show is an incredible joy to produce, and we're honored to have you. We'll talk a little bit more about membership later, but for those of you who are already supporters of the show, I have an announcement. Our Discord chat server is now open for Season 2, and we invite you to continue the discussion with us about the issues, our guests, and the act of change there. Head over to truestory.fm slash thechangeparadox to learn more and get in on the conversation today. And now, W. Lance Bennett with Dodge Ray. Well, welcome, Lance. Thanks so much for being with us. It's a pleasure to be here, Dodge. Thank you. Pete and I worked a lot in season one working around change that primarily affects us on an individual level. And we realized, you know, especially almost a year into this pandemic and having one of the craziest 12 month spans in probably U.S. history, certainly in, in any of our memories, it seemed like a great idea to start season two with somebody with your kind of background in political science and geopolitics and and really looking at change on a global level. And so I thought maybe we'd start by just looking at some of the massive change we've gone through in these last 12 months through your eyes. It's been stunning. It, it has. You know, the, I, I had just finished writing a, a book that I'm guessing we'll talk about later called Communicating the Future, which um, is really about how to think differently about the environmental crises that we face all over the planet. And then suddenly it, that was it, it just it disappeared from the news. And I think it disappeared from people's thinking um, because the pandemic became so intense and, and personal for so many people. 
And then we had the political chaos of, of the end of, we hope, the end of the Trump years. Um, so the, the two of those really, I think, dominated people's attention, emotions. Um, and, and so it has been quite a, a, a difficult year. I mean, I, I, I hesitate to use the word traumatic, um, but the pandemic for people in the kind of lucky position I'm in of, of having an income and, and a nice place to live and so on has not been as traumatic as it has been for others who've been you know directly impacted through loss of life and loved ones. But, but I, I have to confess that I found um, Trump's behavior over the last six months to be traumatic. I mean, it was an assault on assault on my sensibilities, but also it, it, reminded me how much I care about democracy and to see it as jeopardized as it has become uh, has been difficult. Yeah. It's a, it's a fascinating backdrop in my work as a psychologist to find um, in all my years, really politics rarely came up in people's sessions and Increasingly in the last four, but especially over the last, you know, this year and the last half of this year, it's coming up a lot. Uh, people's phones are flashing all the time with headlines that are really distressing. And interestingly, it's it's not just uh, the progressively minded clients of mine that are talking about it with distress. I'm hearing it from the conservative side, too. Some really uh, embarrassed, some worried about where their party's going, some just um horrified by the lack of civility that seems to be left for us. Um, and of course, as you and I are recording this very conversation, uh, we are still in the middle of the impeachment trial, the second impeachment, uh, the only time that's ever happened in our country to a single president. Um, and I wonder, you know, how you're viewing that? Well, I'm, I'm viewing it as um, basically a reality TV show that will be hijacked by the Republicans, um, which is sad because if, if this had happened a week after the Capitol insurrection of, of January 6th, or even two weeks after, um, I really think that there would have been enough Republicans to impeach, but those precious few votes uh, have apparently put their finger in the wind and discovered that two-thirds of, of their voters, uh, the party voters, still believe that Trump won the election and that, that it was stolen from them. So that that's not a good reason to lose your moral principles, such as they are in the Republican Party these days, but it appears that that was enough to turn, turn away the votes. I, I would be very surprised if uh, we might have a vote early Saturday, I'd be very surprised if um, he's convicted, even though it, it, it would offer them the option of, of getting him out of politics. Um, but apparently that's not attractive enough to make a moral stand. There's certainly a very strong argument to be made for the uh, benefit of the GOP to have him out of politics, because it, I mean, as you say, is in many ways hijacked that party. I guess when I see what's happened here, and and to be clear, I I'm not dismissing, and I don't hear you doing that either today or in the conversation we've had before this one, dismissing the 
ideas of conservative politics, this particular application of them right now is much more horrifying than just ideas we might disagree with. Um, and Trump's particular way has been really pretty stunning. I don't think we've seen this in American politics before now. Is that fair to say? Um, certainly not since uh, the middle of the 19th century. I mean, when, when the country was embroiled in civil war, there was mayhem inside Congress and there were personal attacks and um, unscrupulous politicians. And indeed, the, the deal that was made by the Republicans, I mean, the party of Lincoln effectively died in, in 1877 when um, there was a disputed election. I mean, a seriously disputed election. States sent multiple you know, electoral delegate uh, uh, groups to the, the Congress, and uh, they, couldn't, they couldn't decide the election. So the, the Republican presidential candidate basically uh, turned to the uh, Democrats and said, I'll make you a deal. Um, if you make me president, um, I'll let you go uh, and do whatever you want, and we'll end Reconstruction uh, in the South. And, and that's what happened. So you've got, at that point, the Jim Crow era. And so that was a terrible period in our history of violence and um, uh, mm. political deal-making. But, you know, you, you would like to believe in progress, at least I would like to believe in progress, and that we could learn from those dark periods in, in our history, and the Civil War is, is I guess, the darkest, um, and the aftermath of it. But it, it appears that, that there, you know, I have colleagues who claim that, that there is a kind of a psychocultural pattern in American, it's, it's sort of in the, the cultural DNA of, of America toward violence and white supremacy, and, and it never goes away. Um, and mm. I, I don't know, I, I was not persuaded by that argument until lately, but I'm beginning to rethink it as a, as a possibility that we keep reproducing in all the little ways that you reproduce the bad features of culture, or maybe the, the, the dysfunctional features of a personality, and you need to sort of uproot those habits and and find new ones that produce more functional behavior. It's both discouraging and kind of encouraging to me to hear that we've sort of been here before. I mean, we've seen politics this disrupted and dysfunctional and, uh, dare we say, you know, corrupted by self-interest, uh, that that the country was a distant second to political ambition and uh, unscrupulous behavior, let's say. And I think uh, there are a lot of folks who would say there has been a fair amount of that in recent years. Uh, and it's discouraging to hear that here we are again. How did we not learn from it? But also encouraging to think that there, I, at least I want to imagine there is a period between where things got a lot better. Am I, am I wrong? No, no, you're absolutely right. There have been periods, and, and this is the constant struggle. And, and I, I really have begun to think about the, the parallels between individuals or small groups like families in struggles to, to overcome dysfunction um, and negative uh, behavior and, and, and larger groups like countries, populations of countries. And, and I really think that there have been periods of shining improvement. 
um, if you look at the the period of the the early 20th century, where unions, despite having been treated brutally by employers and businesses and so on, um, unions finally began to win that struggle to make working conditions decent and and eliminate child labor and you know really basic stuff. Um, and then that was followed in the 20s. Um, uh, by a progressive era that was kind of mixed. I mean, because the 20s were also the, the era of the roaring 20s and the financial speculation and so on. But, but, but a lot of political reforms against machine politics um, were, were really, you know, for the first time in American history produced in, in those years. And then uh, there was sort of disruption because of war and so on. But, but the, the, the 50s and the 60s, uh, in which the civil rights movement um, became so impressive in its persistence and commitment to nonviolence for the most part, uh, and the use of all the tools that were still available to them in, in a democracy, the courts and uh, elections, to really make progress. And so for that other period between, say, 1954, 455 when Brown versus Board of Education was passed and, and schools were beginning to desegregate. 64, 65 when the Civil Rights and the Voting Rights Acts were passed, which was really the the the, the reproduction of the um, 14th and 15th Amendments to the Constitution, which had never been used, had never been honored since the Civil War. So those were great years, and and the 70s. But but then we we hit the wall in the 80s with um, Ronald Reagan's Morning in America, which was really uh, mourning for the wealthy. Uh, you know, a, a new era of lower taxes and, and keeping more of your money and cutbacks in state and public services. And, and so since then, we've been in this kind of gradual, with some moments of, of, of hope and, and promise. I think that Obama's presidency was a hopeful one, but he met such political resistance and, and kind of nasty, nasty attacks uh, personally through his whole presidency, beginning with Donald Trump and the birthers and, and going on to, to even worse. So coming back for a minute, I'm still curious about how we got from such a dark time I mean, a place of full-scale civil war, let's face it, that is a lot worse than we're, you know, where we are today, as harsh as things have gotten. Somehow it, it did get better. And from your point of view, was the, the, the rise of healthy unions, the end of child labor, the, the rise of largely nonviolent civil rights and so forth, all these things you've just mentioned— did those come about kind of through brute force, or do you think there was a real winning of minds and hearts and the country itself began to welcome those changes? I think many, many in the country did welcome those changes. I mean, I think it's important to, to consider the possibility that we've really been living with minority rule uh, in, the, in the recent period since, since the 80s. I mean, the Republicans have have had an unabashed program of keeping people from voting. I mean, the very people who want progress and who want to honor civil rights and um, uh, other progressive reforms um, are, have been suppressed in their, in their voting in, in many, many states. I mean, not just the, the, 
the red belt in the South, but uh, Wisconsin. I mean, in Wisconsin, if the Democrats want to control the legislature, they need 60% of the vote in the state to do that. Um, so, so this is in North Carolina, Texas, Florida. I mean, the, these state Georgia until the, the heroic efforts of Stacey Abrams and and people who were registering voters faster than they were being removed from the rolls. I mean, there was a like a race between the registration and turnout campaign and the state removing voters for for really very little or no cause so so for and and in the early 80s the republicans began to form the coalition of gun lovers anti-abortion groups uh white christians evangelicals um and and basically the deal and it trump made the deal you know the art of the deal even more impressive i think uh in these terms the deal had been, look, you guys will never get your agendas passed because they're not popular. But if you look the other way, while we stop people from voting against you, then you'll get what you want. And uh, that was enough to get the Christians on board, the gun lovers on board, the anti-abortion crowd on board, and and a sprinkling of, of white nationalists around the edges. And, and Trump found those people. I mean, so Trump's contribution to that was to bring them all in, uh, even the, as Hillary put it, the deplorables. Um, and now we're living with them in the mainstream, whereas they were in the shadows before. So, so I think that, that what's interesting at this moment is that, that the majority in this country still believes that Biden won the election, that we should have decent health care, that we should have gun control, that abortion should be freely available. So, so the major, if the majority could rule, we would have progress. But the political system has been corrupted, um, largely through a, a reinvention of Jim Crow voter suppression that applies still to blacks uh, in many states, but it also applies to poor people who don't have driver's licenses, who can't produce the right kind of uh, registration and those are the people who like healthcare. Those are the people who like decent schools for their kids. Um, but often it is too difficult for them to vote. Can you say a little bit more about that? I don't know that I'm as familiar as I need to be around legitimate evidence of that happening on the other side. So right now we're getting accusations right and left about um, the the election was stolen and there's voter fraud all over the place. And Trump had begun to declare that back in July, long before the election even happened. He was already predicting it would be the largest rigged election of all time. Um, and I shoot, I don't think it's even worth arguing whether there was some smattering of somebody voted in the name of a deceased relative or something, but the idea that it, it could have overcome eight million dollar I mean eight million vote difference is is I think no. considered by almost anybody ridiculous, including sixty courts that threw it out without even trying it. And yet I what I hear you saying is actually ironically, quite cut to the contrary, there's real evidence that if there's voter suppression or election fraud going on, it's it's the other direction. Yeah, no, it, it's um, it, it's very clear that that the voter fraud was was perpetrated by uh, largely red states or swing states that were looking to go red, um, like Wisconsin had done. Um, 
Michigan was in the balance. Pennsylvania was in that balance. So, so that was the plan. I mean, and it, it was a plan. I mean, it was, it was very clear that if you go, you know, one or two steps beyond the headlines to look at meetings and who was at the meetings and the records of the meetings and the um, the, the strategy of appointing conservative federal judges who would uphold state rights around restricting voting. Um, and so that plan was working well. And I think the thing that frustrated Mitch McConnell, who, who had been the most successful person in American history in appointing judges of a particular um, bent politically, um, to support that plan. Because obviously, if you restrict voting so widely, you have legal issues, right? And because it's unconstitutional. But if you appoint judges who think that states can do what they want, because there's that strain of, of judicial theory that says states' rights are over everything in this country, uh, and, and that's a fig leaf, of course, it's a cover story, but the point is that it, it is the prescription for minority rule. And, and what is ironic and kind of tragic in, in many ways is that Trump understood this. And when he said that we can't lose the election, that's what he meant. A couple of statements, if, if you go back into the, the deep weeds of, of news, because Trump was making 10 news stories an hour, it seemed, there during some periods. But if, if he made a couple of statements that basically said, look, you know, the, the way that that this is set up, we can't really lose. And that's why he hated the idea of mail-in balloting, because because that made it easy for people to vote. Um, it wasn't that there's fraud. There, there was almost no recorded case of fraud that would have made a difference. But uh, so, so he was sure that he couldn't lose because the system was rigged. And if the system was rigged, I can't lose. And so he was, of course, he was outraged. And that's where he ended up in this phone call with um, uh, the Secretary of State of Georgia saying, can't you find me 11,000 and some votes? So that's all I need. Um, because in the past, those 11,000 votes would not have been an issue to begin with because they would not have voted. Um, so, yeah. so that's, I think what he, in his twisted logic, I mean, I, I assume I start with the assumption that, that Trump is, um, clinically, uh, unstable, un, unbalanced, ill psychologically. Um, and so, so his world is of course a distorted world, but what's incredible to me is the, his ability to to distort our world through the sheer power of his access to the media and his executive uh, power itself. Is it just my perception or is it kind of just obviously true that that in addition to all of this content as a basic process, like our civility has fallen through the floor in this country. Like I hear clients, especially around the holidays, just dreading Thanksgiving and Christmas <laughs> like I've never heard before because they're so afraid to sit at the table with people who so vehemently and toxically disagree with them uh, politically on either side. I mean, at this point, like family members can't can hardly have dinner together because if the topic comes up, all all bets are off. How did we get to here? Why is has this become so vitriolic? Well, that's a great question. Um, but it, it, as I said in, in in our last discussion, um, it didn't begin with Trump. Um, you can sort of date 
the vitriol, the incivility to the late 80s, when there was a real struggle to to maintain this this minority rule system that had been launched um, uh, at the beginning of that decade, and um, Congress became polarized. I mean, if you look at, at at voting overlap between the Republicans and Democrats in Congress um, in the '60s, '70s, and into the early '80s, there was enough overlap, bipartisan vote sharing that you could get stuff done. And that overlap disappeared by the end of the 80s, and the gap between Republican and Democratic voting in both chambers became just huge, um, to the extent that, that you couldn't do anything bipartisan, uh, or much of anything. And, and all of that produced incivility. I have colleagues in the communication field who actually, um, Kathleen Jameson is a prominent communication scholar at the University of Pennsylvania, and she took members of Congress on a civility retreat, believe it or not, to try to get them to talk to each other in a friendly way. And, and there have been attempts, you know, the, the bipartisan baseball games uh, and, and sports events in Congress, but it's it, it spread. Trump has, has taken it to a new level because he, he was rude crude and socially unacceptable on a daily basis. I mean, he insulted people, he belittled people, so he made it okay. I mean, I, I, if, if I had young children, our, our, our son is now grown, but if, if I had young children, I mean, th that behavior is, is exactly everything you tell kids not to do so that they can be, mm -hmm. you know, acceptable in polite society. And, and Trump made uh, being impolite um, uh, a model. And, and, and obviously others enjoyed that freedom because it, it, it is, you know, the, of course, being polite and civil takes some work. But if you don't have to be polite and civil anymore, wow, that's, that's true freedom as, as near as I can tell how some people understand that. That seems like he's, <laughs> he's been quite an innovator in, uh, in taking incivility and attack politics to a new level in that he's willing to attack people on his own side uh, quite brutally. I mean, right. he will just decimate a career if he can, if they aren't equally vitriolic in support of everything he right. believes. And so now there's, uh, it's, it's fascinating to watch kind of the, I would guess, for for any moderate GOP person, you're in danger from both sides. Um, the Mitt Romneys and Cheneys of the world are in literally physically afraid. Right, and and Liz Cheney was a, is a neocon. I mean, you know, she she was the standard for liberals uh, to to attack in in the '90s and early 2000s. Um, her dad was, you know, the classic neocon, and and now they're the they're the mainstream of the Republican Party. They're the responsible Republicans, the Adam Kinzigers, and so on. There's very few of them. I mean, if if you think about the personal assaults on them and their families, threats on their families, and um, I mean, who's going to go into politics in this environment? Who who would want to do that? So I, I think we're at a real crossroads in this country in terms of, of trying to recapture a, a, enough of the moral high ground and enough civility um, for, for responsible people to want to go into politics. Um, I, I think it's a very challenging time. So, so Trump, back to your question about the, 
you know, why he holds so much sway with the Republican Party is that, that you know, the, the one genius that Trump has is the ability to manipulate, lie, cheat, and get away with it, right? And, and to understand who he's manipulating and lying and cheating. Um, and, and so he understood that the Republican project ha- was not quite finished. I mean, they had the evangelicals, they had the anti-abortion crowd, they had the gun lovers. Uh, but then there was this large kind of disorganized body of white supremacists, and it's not small. I mean, it's as we've seen. And nobody wanted to touch them because, you know, they voted Republican most of the time, I'm guessing. Um, but Trump understood that they could become a force, a political force for him. And so he brought them out and he held those rallies. I mean, those rallies were movement organized. They, they weren't just political campaign rallies. They were movement organizing events. And and so he spent really from his campaign in 2015 and 16 through his presidency and still um, until lately, um, mobilizing a movement under the Make America Great Again banner, which many of us liberals were puzzled by when we first heard it. I mean, what do you mean, make it great again? Well, what that means is let's go back to good old-fashioned white supremacy and male dominance. How about that? I mean, men are, white men are kind of uh, having an identity crisis uh, in, in this country, especially conservative white men. So, so Trump figured that out. He mobilized them, and now he owns the Republican Party. He knows that he owns them, and, and what we're likely to see tomorrow in this impeachment is a verification of that. Um, because he, by any standard, if you don't impeach him, if you don't convict him for this, what possibly could a president not do and get away with? I mean, this, this is, yeah. is, is the highest crime conceivable. And, and the Democrats presented a pretty good case that this wasn't just a spontaneous march on the Capitol, that this was organized. There were rallies around the country by Trump campaign staff getting people ready for this moment and firing them up about the stolen election. Um, there was a lot of online talk about um, civil war, um, about taking the country back and fulfilling this promise to make America great again. And you saw the people who were wearing the hats. So we know who they are. Helping both that, that organization and helping the incivility in this country on both sides um, is a news media now that uh, is often quite split. If you look at Fox News and MSNBC, they come in thoroughly on one side or the other of the political aisle and really make very little bones about it. I mean, they're just that's just where they land. There are many in between. Um, though they have been, I think, pretty effectively um, relabeled as entirely uh, liberal. Mm-hmm. Um, but I didn't realize for a long time until I heard recently that that one reason this has all changed is because we allowed a law to lapse, I think, in the 80s, that at one point said that news journalism had to adhere to some principles that, uh, if I understand right, uh, they're no longer required to adhere to. Is this 
Am I ringing a bell? Yeah, you're ringing a bell. It, it's quite true. It, it didn't apply to um, all journalism. It applied to broadcast um, journalism because the it's called the fairness doctrine. And, and it was a longstanding principle that was dated actually in, in its early forms, and then it was kind of beefed up uh, since. But, but it really began in discussions in the 1940s when it was clear that we were going to have this new media uh, system uh, called television. And, and who's going to regulate? Who's going who's gonna to own it? Uh, and the deal that finally emerged was that it's a public good. Um, and, and that the government therefore should manage it and license use of it. You, you literally use of bandwidth and airwaves and the thinking at the time was, well, that should entail some responsibilities on the part of those who get the licenses and the responsibilities were outlined in, in the fairness doctrine, which finally became a kind of a detailed document of, of guidelines for, um, broadcasters, uh, and particularly news divisions of broadcasters, to be fair by presenting both sides and to be balanced. Well, that, that died at the end of the Reagan years as well. I mean, a lot of things died in the 1980s, and, um, or, or they, they were put on that death march. Uh, and, and the uh, Fairness Doctrine was just, it, it, was, it was eliminated. And then you get Fox News in the mid-90s, 95, 96, who, who almost parodied that doctrine by saying that they were fair and balanced, when, of course, they were partisan and uh, increasingly extremist. I mean, Fox in the 90s and Fox today are two different beasts. Um, but indeed, the, 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 the shrillness, and my wife and I spent many evenings after the election and until the, the Capitol insurrection spending time every night watching MSNBC and Fox covering the same events. And, and there, there, there are different realities. I mean, we, we're, we are not completely happy with MSNBC either because it's, it's playing to a reality that, that is separating us as well, right? I mean, so, so the liberals are living in their own bubble and the, the, the radical right has its own bubble and Fox maintains the, the boundaries on, on that bubble. Uh, so if you would be puzzled at why people are upset with Trump if you're watching Fox. I mean, at some point when lawsuits began flying uh, from voting uh, machine companies against Fox personalities, um, Lou Dobbs has had to leave the network, for example. He was one of the most extreme idiots on, on Fox. Um, but, but he was actually had a large audience, but he was so extremely uh, un unable to find anything resembling a fact. I mean, it was all, it, it became more and more just made up conspiracies. Um, so advertisers finally began pulling out. I mean, what we might see here is the power of business because business needs stability. Business doesn't mind democracy as long as it doesn't regulate them too much. Um, so there's quite a lot of room between where business is comfortable and the extremists that are now threatening uh, the, the stability of democracy itself. So, so I, I, I'm kind of, if I'm optimistic, I'm thinking business could become a louder voice of reason in this country. I, I never thought I would find myself saying that, but but I'm I'm grasping for for hope here. Right. Well, boy, that might be one of the headlines around 
paradoxical change in the political process. Exactly. Who knew that big business and big money might end up being, uh, interestingly, the solution when, in many ways, it started out as one of the major problems. Um, that's, that's fascinating to me. But is there any hope of the fairness doctrine coming back? I mean, because at, at this current state, uh, we really are kept in totally separate bubbles. I mean, to be totally fair to the Fox News side, MSNBC, you know, for anybody who watches it four or five nights in a row, can whip you up just as effectively. And we may agree with some of the principles and some of the, you know, the basic assumptions there. But still, it it, it can be biased reporting, and it makes the other side sound absolutely crazy the way Fox News does. All right. No, and I, you're right. You look at the coverage and they may as well be entirely different events. Yeah, it's it's different realities. You know, we, we've lived with different realities for for, I mean, most of the history of this country. But but they have been managed and uh, undesirable ones, uh, more or less ignored or kept in the shadows. And, and now they're they're, they're outed. They're, they're they're in our face. So, so I, I do think that, that the news has some, um, some room for improvement, you could say, but I don't think the government is going to easily get, get the regulation reins back, um, yeah. if for no other reason than that there are so many news and pseudo-news venues now. Um, you know, digital platforms... Uh, our news feeds. Twitter is a news feed. Facebook is a news feed. Mm-hmm. Um, and what they're feeding is, who knows? Um, it, it could be Russian propaganda from St. Petersburg, or it could be, you know, Q conspiracies made up in somebody's basement. Um, and, and people take that as news. So, so I think that, you know, there's two things that occur to me in, in response to your question. One is that I think journalism needs to create its own agenda rather than continue to just report on one or another version of the political war in Washington. Um, that is mind-numbing for people, uh, even people who are in the choir of Fox or, or MSNBC. Um, so I see a little bit of a parallel with what, what happened with the environmental crisis, because I spent some time deeply concerned about that as a, as a citizen. Um, and as a scholar, what, what I and, and others noticed was that the environmental crisis had become politicized. I mean, that was, that was the way to, to basically end effective action on it, is that, that uh, the Republicans essentially uh, developed a position that, that this wasn't a serious crisis, or if it was, there's nothing we can really do about it because we don't know how to solve it. Uh, and so let's not spend a lot of tax dollars on crazy ideas that may not work. So that turned out to end up polarizing even responsible journalism. So if you look at the New York Times covering the environmental crisis in the, from the mid-90s when, when it became politicized uh, until, I would guess, 10 years ago, um, what you found is, is balance became bias so that you got two sides of the environmental crisis. You got Al Gore's side and you got Newt Gingrich's side. And of course, they were you know, light years apart. And so, so that's what people got from the New York Times. 
And only later did the New York Times realize, and they were hammered by this, one of the few things that scholars can do is basically say, look, you know, here's the evidence about what's happening to the environment, and, and here's your reporting, and it, it, it's 50-50 um, in terms of denial or let's do something. So, so they changed their format. The environment became its own beat. Um, it's still not, I think, a big enough beat. But, and, and, and science began to drive the, the coverage. Same thing happened with AIDS in the 80s. AIDS was polarized. It was, it was a gay man's problem. And then a, a, a little boy named Ryan White got a blood transfusion and, and he got AIDS. And suddenly it wasn't just a gay white man's problem. Uh, and, and through both science and activism, journalism changed. And so AIDS became reported through science rather than through political denial, which is where it was in much of the 80s. And so I'm kind of hoping that the same thing will happen to democracy, that there will be a democracy beat, that that journalists will begin to talk about voter suppression as a news story. I mean, wh why is voter suppression not really a news story? Well, because it's it's in the background. It's it's slow moving. It's it's incremental. You know, Wisconsin before it, it took 60% of the Democrats to to have a majority in the state legislature. It was 52% or 54% and be, you know, little incremental adjustments to voter suppression uh, strategies it makes it hard for, for journalists to sh sh sort of make that a dramatic news story. So, but, but I think it can be in the same way that uh, climate change, that AIDS and that other stories finally changed uh, how journalists thought about them. Um, so I think that, that that is something that, that can be done. Um, but I think that there's plenty of room for people to find their own information out there. I mean, I, I, I'm, you know, hooked on the news insofar as I'm interested in the impeachment trial, but but if I want to understand more deeply about politics, there's plenty of, of NGOs, um, good sort of deep journalism organizations out there that are producing good stuff. I mean, many of them require us to support them um, because the government isn't going to do that. Um, but I think we should. I mean, I, I would encourage uh, all of our listeners to to consider supporting. Um, really credible news organizations that that develop an analytical approach to understanding what's going on. So the Guardian, I I, I encourage readers to look at the Guardian and to give them some money. Uh, if if you're tired of how narrow MSNBC is, check out Democracy Now. Just it, it, you, you can stream Democracy Now on your computer. Um, and, and if you, if you believe that their coverage of the world is better, I mean, at least they cover the world, um, mm -hmm. give them some money too. Boy, so many things to respond to just right there. Let me see if I can back up a minute and say, it seems like in so many ways, the information age has quickly become the misinformation age. Uh, as soon as we realized data was the new oil, right? And we figured out we could twist the data. Uh, you could get a whole lot done really fast. Um, so we're seeing that in this, in, in journalism. Um, 
we're but we're seeing it now at a place where so if if let's say the New York Times realizes okay so we used to cover both sides in a 50-50 way but that wasn't actually an accurate report of the science which was a you know 99 to 1 um agreement exactly. that climate change is a terrible terrible problem and quickly upon us uh then in shifting to begin covering that in that way uh, gives all sorts of ammunition to the, let's say, Fox News and, and others to say, see, look, look how can, you know, liberal the media is. They've, they've completely stopped even covering the other point of view, even if the other point of view is not remotely backed by mm-hmm. data, which shows up is mirrored pretty quickly in this election coverage, where if the media says there is zero evidence that's been put forward and even conservative justices are saying so in totally rejecting court cases there's no evidence that there's been any election fraud that could have swayed this election exactly now that's further evidence of how biased the media is so we should ignore all of them and only listen to fox and so on and i could imagine maybe that would swing both ways i'd like to think that uh there are reasonable folks out there who really care what the actual information is and don't want just a bias. But that requires a few things. One of them is it requires a, a tolerance for the tension uh, and cognitive dissonance that comes up when the information doesn't back what you wish it backed, you know, when it isn't what you hope it was. Like, um, probably the biggest of all, around the climate. Exactly. Like, if we are in grave danger, a lot of us don't want to hear that. It would be nice if it were just sort of a bunch of hysterical liberal scientists uh, who are just making way too right. big a deal out of something in an attempt to be relevant. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, the, 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 the production of parallel realities um, is kind of where we are today. I mean, we've, we've managed to produce um, a couple of massive uh, and incompatible realities that people live in one or the other. I think very few people, back to your dinner table at Thanksgiving uh, dilemma, very few people are comfortable living in both uh, or know how to translate one into the other because they're the, the whole um, way of knowing in one or the other. I mean, one is science-based, the other is emotion-based. I don't, I don't like giving up my giant pickup truck, my 4 by 4 uh, gas guzzler. I, I, it's a lifestyle thing. And, and uh, you know, the, the, that nostalgia for a passing way of life is, is part of the MAGA movement, which promises people, no, we can keep living there. We can keep living there. Um, just believe what we want to believe. And, and which raises the, the question of how our reality is produced. And, and, I mean, that's a big topic. Philosophers have spent, you know, centuries uh, probing that one. But, but, but for, for a kind of a simple thumbnail, you know, how, how do we end up with multiple realities here that so many people occupy incompatibly? Um, is that, you know, reality is a social construct. Right? It's not, I mean, there are some tangible things. It's, it's snowing here right now. I, I'm going to pr- be prepared to say that I see snow outside the window. Um, but, but beyond that, there's a lot of other stuff that requires um, guidance, interpretation, and enforcement. You know, a lot of realities are not just free, freely emerging 
beliefs. They are structured by institutions, from the science that produces knowledge that's reliable and, and that polices its own knowledge base so that, that wacky stuff like chloroquine as a cure for, for uh, COVID doesn't get in there, uh, but also the institutions that use science to guide policy decisions or not. Uh, and that encourage people to take COVID for, for chloroquine for their COVID uh, when it's not going to help them. Uh, so that's an institutional response. And, and when, you know, for years, again, before Trump, the CDC was hollowed out. A lot of public health institutions in this country were hollowed out. The environment institutions have been hollowed out. So it's not surprising that... Um, that the reality is is very divided. I mean, there are still, of course, people who point to science and say, well, but can't we rely more on that? But the institutional authority to say, yes, that's the way we're going, has been eroded. And, and the educational system needs to be beefed up a bit as well. I mean, people, you know, the, another part of the, the conservative project is, is local control of schools. And, and there are many schools in this country that are, you know, not exactly promoting science as, as the first way of understanding a lot of stuff. Um, a lot of schools are promoting more religious thinking. So, so, so we've, we've got this kind of all over the place, uh, pick your reality and live in it. But that doesn't work as a collective. That doesn't work well when we have to do things together or just get along at Thanksgiving. Um, so I think that those are some issues we need to address is the, the restoring of public institutions um, and, and the independence of those public institutions in the face of political pressures, whether they're media regulatory institutions or environmental regulatory institutions. They need to have uh, competent people who are shielded from political pressures, and, and that has eroded. Uh, and the result is we've, we've got the reality gap uh, that we're faced with. I, but I think there's some things that people can do on their own, um, since, since I know we're coming toward the, the end of our conversation here, that with the environment, which is, as I said at the outset, has been my major passion and preoccupation until this last year and a half or so. Um, and, and one of the things that I think I've learned about how most of us and how the news represents the environmental crisis, um, what most of us think about it is that we think that there are environmental solutions. So we need to give money to Greenpeace to save the whales, or we need to give money to WWF to save the polar bears, or, uh, and, and all that. And, and really, and, and that gets reproduced even in the best of news stories. I mean, there's an environment category and you get environment stories. There's an economy category and you get economic stories. And, and it, 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 the more I learned about the environment crisis, the more it is clear that it is our industrial system. It is our fundamental economic system that's killing life on the planet. I mean, it's, it's real simple. And it has been for a long time. It's just been escalating lately. Um, so I think that people and the news, journalists as, as well, can stop isolating environment stories from economic stories and then stop isolating economic stories from 
politics stories. Because if you think about what what are the what what would a real solution to to environmental collapse look like? It would look like changing the economy. And what would that look like? That would look like changing our politics so that that people's interests are actually getting represented. Because majority again think the environment is important. You know, it's it's in a way that's a kind of a duh, really. Uh, but but we have become so used to seeing it as just a, an isolated feature of life. Nice walk in the woods, go camping with the family. Um, gee, the air pollution is so bad I can't breathe today. But we we can fix those things. But how do you you know how do you really fix those things? Uh, you you need to fix the economy, and we don't need this economy. The economy is sacred. It's it's the modern religion of our time. Is this global industrial economy based on consumerism that leads to enormous waste and environmental harm? Um, we don't need to be hooked on consumerism as the most important and meaningful emotional aspect of our lives. But many of us are. Um, and so we, we need to, I, I think as individuals, we can begin to really fundamentally rethink those things. I mean, I, I'm saying this not in a finger pointing way because I am kind of a professional consumer. I mm-hmm. like shopping and mm-hmm. having stuff and, and so on. But I also know I could do with a lot less. And I would like the stuff that I buy to work better and last longer. All of that stuff is possible. It just doesn't produce the level of profits that the economy seems to demand as the sacrifice, the environmental sacrifice to keep it going. Well, your your book, Communicating the Future, as you mentioned, the, the subtitle is Solutions for Environment, e- Economy, and Democracy. And you've you've named all three of those. It's it's an excellent book. And a big piece of what I love about it is that it's patient enough uh to sit with this problem as a multifaceted problem and not just treat it as one. One thing that concerns me about our our culture increasingly is that our attention spans have become very short. And I see this in interesting places in in psychotherapy where when, let's say I'm working with somebody in their relationship with a parent, right? It's easier to maintain just a caricature of the badness of that parent and not see the complexity of that person. They're more than that. Mm -hmm. They may have given you actually their very best, even though it wasn't what you needed. Right. And it makes a lot of sense to me. I, I, I mean, I don't approach that with impatience because I really have great compassion for how hard it is to slow down and be with the complexity of a problem, whether it's in a person or it's as something as huge as this entire earth in massive inflammation, right? To a point where it's really going to threaten our species very soon if if we don't make a big change. And you're proposing, but we can't just make the change in basic environmental policy because to do that, we have got to change the way we work our economy, which means we really have to change the way our democracy works. And Correct. that on one hand can feel hopeless because... We're watching right now an impeachment trial where at any other time in history, I think it would have been really clear there's no way this guy's political future can possibly sustain what's just happened. But Trump has managed to do that for four years. I mean, from before he was even elected the first time. 
he's he's been able to weather these things and it's it's creating kind of a standoff of democracy where you got to wonder um can we change politically can we get there as a country and in order to change our economy in order to change our environment so that we can s- survive as a species i mean the answer is yes but how and 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 i i i will you know just tell a bit of a personal story in the couple of years that I spent thinking about this book and then the year or so that I spent finally writing it's not a, a long book and I, I hope it's an accessible one it is. Um, for for general readers um, but when I went in I thought well you know it's so simple we got in this mess in part because of politics that made it okay for fracking companies to poison the water supplies of Pennsylvania rural areas, and we made it okay for businesses to to make enormous profits and pay relatively low taxes because we we somebody not the general public. I mean, again, most of this most of our problems are not things that majorities of people support, um, but but that the, the those with power to make laws, um, you know, have have created an economic system that couldn't be worse for the environment. So I started this whole project thinking, well, we can just back out of there. We can change the tax system. We can change the corporate profit system. We can change how corporations report their profits, and we can change laws that hold them accountable for a broader range of stakeholders than just shareholders. Um, I mean, all that's, it's just doable. You can imagine the laws just by thinking about them. Um, and, and, the, but I thought, you know, the, we are dealing with a system that is enormously complex, right? If the United States does that, which is the United States will be the last major country to do that. China may be actually the last and the United States kind of right ahead of that. But even if if more progressive countries like Germany or Sweden move in those directions, um, what what is the the force that will create um, sort of a cascade of positive other country following that? Um, and and so I've begun to supplement that thinking. This wave my magic wand, you know how we got into this mess and how to get back out of it again. Um, in terms of, of much more local solutions, I do think that, that, you know, people have choices at the local level. I mean, you know, choices that if, if you're fortunate as, as I am, um, to go to the local farmer's market near our neighborhood every Sunday and buy uh, most of our week's food, yeah, it costs more, but I can afford it. So I'm, you know, I'd much rather pay money to a young enthusiastic person who's growing the tastiest garlic I've ever had in my life, <laughs> changed my life around garlic, um, or, or the, this little bakery co-op that makes just the tastiest banana bread and, and wonderful bakery products and so on. Yeah, sure, it costs more than buying it at Whole Foods, but, you know, I don't need to feed Jeff Bezos's profit margin any more than I already do. Yeah. Um, and I would much rather support a local thriving community economy, you know, that, that, and, and, and we can all, those of us who are lucky enough to afford it and live in places like Nashville or Seattle or Portland uh, or many, many other cities around the country, 
you know, we we can do that, and it 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 feels good. I mean, in, in these times, I mean, the, the opening of our conversation was a lot of gloomy, doomy stuff. Um, but but I do think that being positive is is the most important thing for individuals to do these days. And being positive just doesn't mean you know whistling a happy tune. It, it means doing stuff differently. And, and so there's a whole collection of, of little things, but they add up to, to reinforce the positive aspects of local economy, local community, um, and local well-being. So I, I'm coming to that now at the end of having written Communicating the Future. Share with us some more. What are some of those? For example, um I'm aware that if environment were something that were of utmost importance to somebody, we might donate to this organization, but do actually more good if we donated upstream to one that that influenced, you know, the problem at a at a higher level and was more likely sure. to create change. What are some of the ones that you're a big believer in and uh, that you'd suggest people look into? Well, it, it, the last chapter of the book, I, I, I'm, I'm going to plug the book here on that because I, I do offer a, a long list of, of, of organizations that um, try to combine these, these different aspects of the problem, the, the environmental problem, of course, being paramount, but the economic underpinnings of that problem. So, so there are a lot of sort of new economy organizations, I'm sure, if, if you just search under new economy organizations, you'll get a, a whole uh, page or two of hits on them, and um, and they're interesting. The, but but these ideas are not um, new, actually. They they're, they've been around since the fifties and the sixties. I mean, people um, realized that we were poisoning ourselves pretty early on, and um, and so there was a, a, a wonderful new economy movement that emerged in the late 60s and in 70s, uh, steady state economy, um, uh, you know, sort of the idea of the circular economy, that the inputs and the outputs, the wastes and so on have to balance. Um, that's come back again. Uh, a British economist named Kate Raworth has written a very fun and simple, entertaining book uh, called um, The Donut Economy. And uh, but it's all these these are old ideas. And that's what leads me beyond economics to the politics is that they're constantly being sort of sidetracked with politics that say, oh, yeah, we'd love to deal with this economic problem, but it will cost us jobs. Well, it turns out that's not true. I mean, it's not necessarily true. It's true if we are determined to keep the economy we've got now, then, yeah, it's true. But but you can retrain people and create new jobs. And it's not that's not rocket science, but it's a statement about the commitment to the path we're on rather than a commitment to changing the path. So I think you really need to look at uh, groups that talk to each other. And it turns out that because the world is so categorized and structured, environmental groups, save the polar bears, new economy groups, think about co-ops and local community, sustainable economies, and, and political reform groups um, want to stop voter suppression. And, and all of those are perfectly reasonable things to want to do, but it turns out none of them is working. So we've got this uh, sort of self-imposed, it's not self-imposed because it's reinforced through 
the way policy is made, the way laws are passed. There's environmental committees, there's economics committees, and there's politics committees, you know, and they, so, so the, the structuring of our reality keeps us from being able to combine the ingredients we need uh, to actually address complex problems. But individuals can understand them differently. I mean, my, my hope from our hour together is that, that your audience will begin to see that, that we are stuck in, in part, not entirely, but in part because we see environmental problems as separate from or even competing with economic issues. Mm-hmm. And, and we see those things as uh, implicated in politics in, in ways that we don't understand or can't do much about. But at some level, I think that we can both reach individual understandings that cross those different you know, fields, those different categories of life, um, but also find a level of our community where they are actually in play. Um, I've had a project in Seattle to try and convince funders. I mean, it turns out that, that a lot of this is sort of upstream. So funding agencies fund environment or they fund political reform or they fund economic change. Uh, but they don't do all three. So we, we've been convening uh, meetings of funders. Seattle has a lot of rich people who made money on, on technology um, investments, and uh, some of them are progressive and really are deeply committed to change, local community change, helping small environmentally impacted groups and environmental justice organizations uh, get some traction. Um, but what they don't understand is that those groups constantly run up against the other categories of the problem. And so we're beginning to try to train funders to fund more programmatic uh, agendas and to get these groups that are in different bins currently to cooperate and work together so that they aren't continuously under the radar invisible to the general public, but they become visible and develop good ideas that people want to get behind beautiful well it reminds me just on on kind of an individual level how much it's true that we tend to want to solve a problem in a silo rather than recognize Mm -hmm. how systemic it is sure i mean if you just to end on a crazy note i mean i i I think of um bill gates often because he's a a local uh resident here and um you know, he's a happy guy. The world's great for him. I mean, but he's one of the richest people on the planet, you know, and, and so of course he's happy. I mean, it would be sad if he were not happy under those conditions. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so he aligns himself with thinkers like Steven Pinker from Harvard, who's this fount of optimism about we've never had it so good. Well, you know, we've never had it so good if you look at narrow categories of statistics for particular categories of people. Um, but and now Bill Gates is is funding these what I think of as kind of insane projects to create a permanent cloud layer over the Earth to shield us from the sun. Well, you know the the and that could be very dangerous. I mean, it's not it's not just like it's a wacky sounding idea, but it could actually be a dangerous idea because we don't know what could happen if we create this um, fake atmosphere. Um, but the point is that it, if you trace it all back, it's because he has prospered from a system that he doesn't want to change. 
Mm. And so it's that, it, so he can't go there. So if you can't go to the fundamental thing that's causing your problem, you often end up going someplace that isn't going to work or worse, could be even more dysfunctional. Mm. Here, so here. I, 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 <laughs> I see these things going on at the individual level, at the sort of societal level, at the global level. And, uh, and, and to me, the, the path forward, since, since we're talking two people here and you've got an audience of individuals, is to, to give ourselves the opportunity to understand things, understand complex things in simple ways that would work better. Yes. That's, that's my goal. And, and just that level of understanding, as I'm watching an eagle sail around the front yard looking for food this morning in a very snowy landscape. Um, you know, I, I find these things to be um, very hopeful that, that we, we can understand things differently and that in itself becomes empowering yes. um, and, and makes us much more functional, I think, as, as human beings. Well said, Lance. Thank you so much for your time today. It's been really a joy. Could talk to you all day, but I think you have to get on the road, and you've got some snow to compete with <laughs> before the next the, the next stage of this snowstorm comes in. I've got to try and get out of here. Speaking of climate, so, let's let's uh, be exactly. on our way. I really appreciate your time, Dodge. It's been a pleasure. Always uh, look forward to our next conversation. Me too. Me too. And everybody out there, look to the show notes for more on uh, Lance's book, but also some of uh, Lance's suggestions for areas to look for ways to put your time and energy and resources. Hey, it's Pete again. Just checking in. I wish I had someone here to check in on me. I'm still struggling myself to have these kinds of conversations without getting wound up. I found that conversation illustrative of a conversation about important things with an individual who has picked precisely the topics most important to step up to. What a role model, Lance. I can't help but sing a little Tracy Chapman when I listen through that conversation, too. I guess Bob Dylan by way of Tracy Chapman. He opened a concert with the anthem, uh, Times They Are a-Changin', the night after JFK was assassinated in Dallas. It became one of Rolling Stone's greatest songs of all time, and Chapman, who was more of my era, remade it in 1993. If your time to you is worth saving, then you better start swimming. Or you'll sink like a stone for the times they are a-changin'. Lance had to hit the road to avoid the snow, so we're short one experiential exercise. But don't worry, Dodge stepped in and has a practice for you this week that will fit the bill to help you stay grounded through the noise. Before you get started, a quick reminder of our membership program here at The Change Paradox. We're a ragtag group of podcasters here at True Story FM. We are dedicated to shows that educate, illuminate, and entertain. With your foundational support, we are able to invest more time in it, work with more guests and teachers, and grow the show in more powerful ways. Can we promise a direction to you? No. We change as we grow. But we can promise that we love this show, and we love producing it for you. If you've thought about joining but haven't actually jumped on the computer to do the deed, head over to truestory.fm slash thechangeparadox. Scroll down a bit. 
and sign up today. And here's our man Dodge, a grounding practice to help us through the noise. I was thinking about how we might turn that conversation into an experiential exercise you can apply in your own lives. And what's really standing out to me, especially at the end there, was Lance pointing out that all of these issues are systemic. We can't really have dye in the water of one side of the bucket without eventually affecting all of it, and that He was pointing that out, looking at the environment being related to our rather rigid notions about how an economy must work for everyone's benefit, which lead to a lot of really rigid applications in politics. And that in order to change this earth we live on, we're going to have to change the way we think about um, economy and, and democracy. And he's written a heck of a good book about it. I'd suggest you go check it out. But I wonder, maybe that's exactly what's happening in all of our lives. So here's my idea for an experiential exercise. As usual, let's take a look at a change that's been mm, stubborn. Something in your life you've been wanting to move for some time now and that seems kind of stuck. And here's what I want you to do with it for the next couple of weeks. I'd like you to not change that. I'd like you instead to look upstream at something you have kind of a funny hunch might be affecting that or helping keep it stuck in its place and consider just being willing to change something upstream and maybe lean in just a little bit harder than willing. Willing to actually identify some part of that you'd be willing to take some action on. So here'd be an example. Let's say it's driving you crazy that you're just not sleeping very well anymore. And what you've been tinkering with for some time has been sleep meds, herbal remedies, homeopathics, a better pillow, maybe a whole new mattress. You keep going directly to what seems like the siloed issue of a sleep problem. What if we leave that alone for a little while? And in this example, we start looking at, wonder, what are you eating at night and how much? Or, have you ever tracked how well you sleep on the days you exercise versus the days you don't? Or, what time are you stopping drinking caffeine? Or, Is there any chance you're just working too hard or watching, shoot, um, Fox News or MSNBC too late into the evening? This would be one example. Let's pick another one. Maybe it's... Maybe it's your short temper. And what you keep trying to do is to suppress that to figure out a way to just say something nice. Good idea, but what if we, for a little while, um, focus somewhere further upstream? 
Maybe that's related to, are you actually getting enough rest? Or are you working straight through the day without any break? Are you maybe by chance finding depression has creeped in, in this isolated, bizarre pandemic climate we live in? And you never knew that depression often leads to irritability and anger. Have you not been getting enough exercise? Or have you not maybe been focusing enough on the well-being of others? I don't mean just in your niceness, but let's say in your meditation practice, if you've got one. Maybe you need to be doing a little bit more of the Buddhist metta practice, which is to offer loving kindness to those you know and don't know so well and maybe even those you don't like at all. These would be a couple of examples of ways to come to work more systemically and globally with what what might be disguised as a problem that's stuck in only one part of your life. Give it a whirl, and we'll see you in a couple weeks.